Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa. What he saw regarding Israel in the day of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. (laughs) Amos is not a part of the prophet class of people. Amos is a shepherd. He is a uh, sheep breeder, it says here. Later on, we'll read, he also keeps fig trees. He's a farmer in one way or another. But God calls him, and so he comes forward into the middle of Jerusalem. And this is at a time where Jerusalem is prosperous. The enemy nations around Israel seem to be doing poorly. And Amos goes on into the main city, into Jerusalem, and he starts preaching loud and fiery. And everyone starts listening because they like what he's saying. Now, we're still very early in Israel's history when this is going on. The nation is already split into two. You know, there are only three kings that ruled over all of Israel, Saul, then King David, then Solomon, and then amongst Solomon's children, it splits into the northern kingdom, which is called Israel from that point, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah from that point. That's why it's listed here at the beginning that there was this king in Israel and this king in Judah, all of them Israel, so to speak, together, but they've already split up uh, separate from each other. And so Amos goes into Judah goes into Israel and starts proclaiming the word of the Lord. He's from the southern kingdom, but he goes, he's from not far outside of Jerusalem, but he goes up into the northern kingdom, the more tribes, the bigger kingdom, and he begins declaring this word, and the word that he says is this, verse 3, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four Because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges, therefore I will send fire against Hazael's palace. It will be consumed like Ben-Hadad's citadel. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon, the one who wields the scepter from Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Ker. The Lord has spoken. Amos goes out and begins to prophesy in Israel. And he starts telling them that their hated neighbors, those people from Damascus, are about to get theirs. And so you got to imagine, when Amos begins preaching, everybody loves it. He's preaching a fiery message, but he's preaching it against the neighbors, those hated enemies. Uh, Israel had been at war with Damascus for a few decades. And the first thing he says is that God's judgment is going to come against Damascus. And you can imagine all the people in Israel going, yeah, that's what we want to hear. And then Amos makes a prophecy against Gaza, another hated enemy in that time. And then against Tyre in verse 9, Edom in verse 11, the Ammonites in verse 13. And one by one, Amos is prophesying against every one of these enemy nations who are evil and do evil and attack Israel. And you've got to imagine the Israelites, by the end of this list, are standing up applauding the prophecy, uh, rejoicing to hear this guy proclaiming that God is about to destroy all their enemies. In chapter 2, he prophesies against Moab, another enemy. And then chapter 2, verse 4, 
the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah and will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. I think you're also supposed to understand these people of Israel, not Judah, the nation that uh, Amos goes to prophesy against, they're still kind of excited about this. It's all the enemy neighbors, and then it's also Judah, which also Jewish, but now a separate nation. And you're supposed to understand that the people in Israel and those tribes are rejoicing also to say, yes, right, Judah's going to get theirs too, because they're not like us and they've broken off. They're separate, and they've been doing, what was it, all the sins that their fathers did, not keeping the statutes of God. You got to imagine up until this point, Amos is a very popular prophet, but then it all turns because he says in chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel. (laughs) Now, what now? (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) Everyone's rejoicing and applauding and excited. And then here's the declaration of God against them. I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver, a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground. They obstruct the paths of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral. In the house of their God, they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars. He was sturdy as an oak. I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorites. I raised up some of your sons as prophets, some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. You have made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. Look, I am about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. And the one who is swift of foot will not save himself. The one who rides a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. It's this wonderful transition, this beautiful effect where the people are cheering, people are rejoicing to hear Amos prophesy against the evil and all the neighbors, but then he adds to it their own evil lifestyle and the people don't want to hear it anymore. And he doesn't just say God's angry with you. He calls out the specific sins that are there, that Israel's doing, that are making God so furious. This continues on for several chapters. God lays out his punishment. He says, you guys were supposed to go and worship in Jerusalem at the temple that I established, and instead you created these other places, Bethel and Gilgal, these towns in in Israel, in the northern kingdom where you could worship and not have to go down to the southern kingdom. 
But even then, when you established these other places, breaking my commands, you started worshiping false gods there. God cries out to them against their complacency. He calls out to them against all the evil sorts of things that they're doing. And yet, amidst the prophet Amos going to them and rightly telling them, what you're doing is wrong, it's evil, and God's going to bring judgment against you like the other nations, right in the middle of it, there are times in which God says, but even now, you can repent and turn and change, and I'll accept you. Chapter 5, verse 14, God speaks to Israel and says, pursue good and not evil so that you may live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice in the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. It says, even now, you've done all kinds of evil stuff and the judgment is coming. But even now, I will... Hold back the judgment if you will turn and simply do what is good. If you will love what is good instead of loving what is evil, which is what you're actually doing. And then still in chapter 5, he talks to them about the day of the Lord. You'll remember a few weeks ago when we were reading Joel, the book right before this, it talked about the day of the Lord as well. And here we have a real early passage explaining what the day of the Lord is. Israel had this idea of this day when God was going to come and bring judgment against all the other nations, this day of the Lord that was going to be a day of rejoicing. Because after all, anytime God has shown up in Israel's past before now, it's been for the sake of blessing them. When God arrived at the day of the Lord, you could call it, in Egypt and said, I've seen their suffering and now I'm going to save them, and then with all these powerful miracles, with these plagues, demonstrated that he's the one true God and brought them out of slavery and made them a nation. I mean, every time they've seen the Lord come in these powerful ways, it's always been beautiful and it's always been for their benefit. And so they look forward to this future day of the Lord when God's going to do it again. But they don't recognize that they're on the wrong side of God's judgment here. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 18, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. That's a powerful image. He goes home and he rests his head against a wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light? even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. If you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. That says you're looking forward to this day of the Lord, but it's going to be against you and not for you because you've set yourself against God doing all kinds of evil. He says even more powerfully, stop 
offering sacrifices. I don't want them. I'm not going to accept them. Stop singing. It's just noise to me because you're living evil lives. So stop singing. Rather, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. You see, justice and righteousness are always related. They are called in the Psalms the foundation of God's throne. Justice is making sure things are done right in the world, and righteousness, that is yourself living right, they're not quite the same thing, but they're so related as to be if there's no justice, then there's no righteousness. And if there's no righteousness, there will be no justice. They're connected, and they're connected in God, and what He says to them is not that one sin is wrong in your life, but that your life completely and wholly is incorrect. It would be as if a prophet stood up and said today to us, hey, I know you're singing some worship songs to God. I know you got yourself up so you could hear the word of the Lord, but stop singing if you're not going to obey it. Don't make any more sacrifices of your time and effort if you're not going to love your neighbor and love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's this powerful message that Amos declares against the people. Now, of course, as you would expect, not everybody wants to hear this. An opposition arises, chapter 7, against Amos. Chapter 7, verse 10, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel. So this is a priest, not one of God's priests in, Israel, in Jerusalem, but one of the priests in Bethel, who goes to the king there of the northern kingdom of Israel and says, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure all his words, for Amos has said this, that Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go away into exile from its homeland. So then Amaziah said to Amos, go away, shoo, he says, go away, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, earn your living and give your prophecies there, but don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it's the king's sanctuary and a royal temple." The hoi polloi, the insiders, the intelligentsia, those who are in power, the lead priest for this king who is awful, who does awful himself, says, you know what, get, get. We don't want to hear from you anymore. Go on down to the southern kingdom. Go to Judah and see if they'll listen to this. Go make your money there. We don't want to hear this from you here. And what does Amos say to him? Verse 14, Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman, and I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, hear the word of the Lord. He says, listen, I know I'm not an insider on this. I know I wasn't born to the prophecy class. My dad wasn't a prophet. I'm not a prophet But I was out working the herds, and God came to me and said, go and do this, and so I'm here to obey God. Now listen to the word of the Lord. Though Amos, in the eyes of those who are in charge, is something of a bumpkin, a redneck. He's a farmer. They say, go back to your farm. Quit making a stir. Amos says, yeah, you're right. I'm not educated. I'm just a farmer. But it doesn't matter. God commanded, and so here I am to obey. Listen to what he has to say to you. And Amos continues to prophesy against Israel with the hope that they will listen 
and turn and repent and be forgiven by God. In this latter half of the book of Amos, in these last few chapters, there's a series of visions that he sees from God. These series of visions include locusts that are going to come, but God is gracious and holds it back. A fire that is going to come and consume Israel, but God is gracious and holds it back. He sees a plumb line where God says, I'm going to measure Israel now and bring it down to its knees, to bring it low and flat. Then in chapter 8, in this vision of a basket of summer fruit, God says this, verse 11, what I think is perhaps the most terrifying prophecy that God gives to Israel. God says, look, the days are coming, and this is the declaration of the Lord God, when I will send a famine through the land, but not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, and they will roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it terrifying as everything else is, he says, here's going to be another day. I'm going to bring a day when the prophets won't come and speak to you any longer. I won't speak to you anymore. There will be a famine in the land where the word of the Lord will not be spoken, and you'll go to the most remote places looking for some holy man, some prophet who can tell you what I think, and you're not going to hear it anywhere. We're to understand that this happens. As between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, it's something like 400 years where God says, I'm going to send a Savior, but until then, silence. And then 400 years pass by. Again, always for perspective, I like to use us, America. How long have we been going at this as a country? 245, 247? 400 years God doesn't speak to Israel. And then, at just the right time, an angel appears to Mary with a message from God and says, you have been chosen to bring about this redemption. Now it is time. Finally, I want to read to you the end of all these prophecies. Chapter 9 of Amos works something as a summary, starting in verse 7. It comes in as an announcement, first of judgment, but then of restoration. Chapter 9, verse 7. Israelites, God says, are you not like the Cushites to me? This is the Lord's declaration. Didn't I bring Israel from the land of Egypt? The Philistines from Kaftor? The the Arameans from Kerr? Look, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. This is the Lord's declaration. I am about to give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes a sieve, but not a pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners among my people who say, disaster will never overtake or confront us, They will die by the sword. God says, here's here's the judgment against Israel. Like all the other nations, aren't you just like one of the other nations to me since you have sinned and rejected God? So I'm going to scatter you in such a way like a person scatters flour out of a sieve. 
Not a single clump will come out where you'll be gathered together. You'll be completely alone and scattered to the nations. And all those people who are out there saying, no, it's not going to happen. God's not going to bring judgment against us. They're going to die by the sword. But this is not the last word. Verse 11, in that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps. I will restore its ruins. And I will rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper, the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. All the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities. Plant vineyards and drink their wine. Make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land. And they will never be uprooted again. From the land that I have given you. The Lord your God has spoken. He declares this judgment that is coming on them and rightly coming on them. But then, and understand that this is just who God is. He says, but I'm going to leave a remnant. Not everyone in Israel is going to die. They're going to be judged. They're going to be sifted and sent out to the nations. But they won't be completely destroyed. And at just the right time, I'm going to restore them. Not because of anything that they do. I'm just going to do this because I'm good and I care about them and I want good for them. And so someday I'm going to restore them in such a way. He says this interesting uh, verse, the plowman will overtake the reaper. The idea is that the ground is so fertile, they're still trying to gather up all the fruits off the ground when it's time to start plowing it again and laying the crops out again. And so the plowman comes up and says, aren't you guys done collecting all the crops? And the reaper's saying, no, there's still more. There's never going to be a bad season. There's never going to be a moment where you have to wonder what you have to eat. I'm going to provide everything in abundance and have it overflow, and this will go on forever, is what God says. The Lord your God has spoken. Well, what's this going to mean? What's this about? Amos, a farmer prophet, goes up to a rich, affluent kingdom, calls them out for their sins. They don't listen. They send packing or try to. And he declares... Because the word of, the God, word of God has come to them and has come to them and has come to them, but they refuse to change. God's desire is for them to repent and receive good. But since they refuse to and they won't change, he's going to treat them as objects of judgment like the rest of the nations. And they're going to have judgment come on them. But still, because this God is so good and so full of grace and mercy there will be a day of restoration. Not when they start to get a little stronger, but a day when He does the work of restoration for them. This is our God. If we're going to apply this book 
to our lives and understand that this is the word of God still spoken to us, first we're going to have to understand what does Israel do wrong here? What are the sins that Israel does wrong? Go ahead and tip my hand to you. It's not just one thing. It never is, really. Because one thing leads to another when it comes to sin. They are accused specifically in this passage of trampling on the poor. The idea is there were some poor farmers and there was a famine, there was difficulty, there were earthquakes, these sorts of things happen. And what they did, the wealthy then, used that as an opportunity to force taxes and loans and take over the land of these people who had nothing. And instead of using their position of affluence and wealth to build up and increase their neighbors who were in poverty, they instead used it as an opportunity to oppress them and gain wealth themselves. They trampled on the poor. It says you're going to celebrate in the temple, but you're drinking wine that you purchased with money that you unfairly taxed people with. You've stolen it from them, and you're trying to come and worship me with stolen goods. They trample on the poor, but also, you, you heard it there early on. There's sexual immorality going on. So is there just gross stuff happening. These father and son sleeping with the same person. It, it's filthy. They're awful. Their sins are exposed here for us. Not only do they trample the poor, but they also allow injustice to happen. Whenever they see somebody else doing evil, they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's just the way of the world. What am I going to do about it? And they allow for this to happen when their purpose was to create justice in an unjust world. They worship gods of their own making. Not only did they create these other places to worship God so they could not have to go down to Jerusalem anymore to the temple since this country split, and they created their own worship places. God didn't tell them to do this. They just did it so that they could rule over their own houses of worship. And then not only did they do that wrong, but they began to worship these other gods. It's in a part of Amos that we didn't read over, but he, Amos names them. He says, you created this God and you created this God. They're gods of your own making, and you created them so you could worship them at Bethel and worship them at Gilgal and not come down and worship the one true God in Jerusalem at his temple. They are complacent. There's a passage that speaks to them as if they're just people laying around on cushions drinking up the wealth of the nations, eating everything that belongs to everyone else, growing fat themselves. There's one part in here where he calls the women in town cows of Bashan. He says, you heifers uh, who have gotten fat off the wealth of other people, who have stolen things and taken it yourself. He says, you have every good thing you need and now you've gotten complacent. And he calls them out for their complacency. But more than anything, he calls them out for their arrogance and their pride. These people, in God's eyes, in our eyes, they are slaves. They were destitute in Egypt. They had no power and their children were taken from them to be killed at the whims of a foreign king. They had nothing and God brought them out of Egypt and made them something but they got arrogant and prideful, assuming it was something they had done. 
they got it. They could keep it. It was their own doing. God didn't give it to them. God's not going to take it away from them. And they can worship whatever they want to and do whatever they want to. Their moral law had become at this point, you should do whatever it is you can get away with. But they weren't going to get away with anything because there is justice from God. And God was going to bring justice at this time. God hates these sins of Israel. So what's the point of this book? God hates arrogance and pride. And, you know, we do too, right? None of us are particularly attracted or drawn to arrogant, prideful people. If there's one thing that I hate seeing in somebody else, it's arrogance and it's pride. If you're talking about some athlete who says, well, I mean, it's not a stretch to say that I'm the best that's ever played the game. (laughs) And then they fail to deliver every time. Nobody likes arrogance. Nobody likes pride. Except when it's in ourselves. Then it's okay. We give ourselves a pass. (laughs) We have it in our hearts as well, and we desire to elevate ourselves over others. This is what arrogance and pride is, the desire to elevate ourselves above others. And what's wrong with this? God has called us to lay down our lives to elevate others. Jesus Christ himself laid down his life to lift us up. Arrogance, pride, is the exact opposite of what Christ did. It is us trying to get ahead over other people. It's absolutely godless. What's the point? God is especially harsh against those who cheat or abuse the poor and the vulnerable. Prosperity is not necessarily a sign that God approves of our lifestyle. God does bless and God does provide and we rejoice when God blesses and provides. But prosperity is not necessarily a sign of the blessing of God. After all, these rich Israelites got their prosperity by oppressing poor people. They did it evil ways. Another thing you need to know, God repeatedly calls for repentance and he only brings judgment after they will not listen. But God would prefer their repentance and him blessing them. Don't you know this God's heart for Israel is not that they would face judgment, but that they would repent and face blessings from God. And don't you know likewise for us, God is serious about sin and will bring judgment against our sins. But he would far prefer that it be Christ who paid for all of your sins. He would far prefer that you receive the blessings of the righteous life and the blessings of God than the judgment of God. So, what are we supposed to do today? Now you know Amos. This is what that book is about. Isn't it a wonderful book of the Bible? Full of twists, full of prophecy, full of powerful rebukes, but also the grace of God, declaring justice in an unjust world, declaring righteousness from God when there is no righteousness from people. What are you and I supposed to do now? Well, 
First of all, you need to listen to the prophet who is against you. The problem that Israel makes here is, first of all, all the sin they do. But hey, we're already in the same boat with them. Are we not sinners? We know we are. And you know you have blind spots about yourself as well. So the way that we're going to be different different is by being the kind of people who will listen when a prophet comes and speaks against us. You want to know the difference between a righteous person and an unrighteous person? It's how they respond when the prophecy is against them. After all, the Israelites here, they're all cheering about judgment of all their neighbors, and then Amos turns, and you imagine, I kind of think about all these Israelites, when he, Amos' prophecy turns against them, it's like they do a spit take, right? They're celebrating, they're in the midst of their festivals, they're drinking their wine, and then Amos says, and then Israel's going to be destroyed, and they go, you know, and spit out what they were drinking. It's one of those abrupt, what? But what is their response? Their response is to say, hey, stop prophesying. You get out of here. We don't want to hear any of that here. We have the exact opposite example in Scripture as well. We have an example of a righteous man who does evil, and the prophecy of the Lord comes just in the same way to him, but that man repents. And it's King David when Nathan comes to him. Do you know this? King David, man after God's own heart, greatest king of Israel, also a sinner. He sleeps with a woman who's not his wife. He sends the husband off to the front lines to be killed, to cover up his shame, so that he can secretly marry this woman, and the child that she's going to bear from their union can be his. He does evil that leads to evil that leads to evil. And the prophet Nathan comes to him. In a very similar way, the prophet Amos goes to uh, God's people Israel here. Nathan comes to King David and says, David, I have a question for you about justice. There's a rich man who has so many sheep. He's got flocks and herds and all kinds of animals, and he has everything that he needs, and he has a poor neighbor who just has one little baby lamb, and the baby lamb is like a child to him, and it sleeps in the bed with him and his family. It's all that they have. And this rich man has a neighbor coming for feast, but the rich man doesn't want to kill one of his many sheep. And so he goes and he takes that sheep from that man and slaughters it to feed his guests. King David, what should happen to that man? And David stands up and is livid and he says, that man should surely die for the evil and injustice that he's done. And Nathan says, David, that man is you. You took another man's wife and you had him killed to cover up your own sin. You had everything. You were the king and you destroyed a man's life who was a faithful soldier to you. It's the same sort of thing that happens there with Amos prophesying, right? But what's the difference? David immediately responds to Nathan, you're right. I've sinned against the Lord. David is repentant. The word of the Lord comes to David and he doesn't harden his heart and say, Nathan, get out of here. Quit prophesying against me. I'm the king. I can do what I want. He falls on his knees. He declares a fast for himself. He tears his clothes. He repents. So you know what the difference for us today is between the righteous or the unrighteous person? 
It's when you hear the word of the Lord and it cuts into you and it opens your eyes and helps you realize you're the one who's done wrong. You've got to be the person who says, ah, you've got to be the person who doesn't say, ah, that pastor's just gotten liberal or something. He's gotten soft. His theology's gotten bad. I'm done with him. We have to be the people who hear the word of the Lord and let it correct us and turn to God and say, you're right, I am a sinner. I'm going to repent. Please help me, Lord. Save me. Be the kind of person who listens to the prophecies against you. You know who becomes a Christian? In the book of Acts, after the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples and Peter begins preaching there at Pentecost, he shares with the crowds. All the crowds are gathered up and miracles are happening. And Peter preaches to the crowds and says, okay, here's what happened. God sent his only begotten son. God himself came down and took on flesh, taught us how to be right, and you killed him. That's the sermon. But don't you know that there were a lot in the crowds that day who heard the word of the Lord and believed? And the response in Scripture from those crowds was they said, oh no. They believed. They knew they were wrong. They turned to Peter and they said, what must we do? That's the difference between a Christian and not. Is the one who hears the word of the Lord, we've done wrong and we're sinners, and believes it and says, okay, what do I need to do to be right? What can I do? Anything, everything in my life belongs to God now. I will give over anything. What can I do to be right? The answer always is the same from Peter to the crowds and to you today. It's very simple. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins as best you can in whatever ability you have, not in a token way, but make radical life changes to never go near temptation again. Repent and believe that God accepts everyone that comes to Him and will forgive the sins of all those who believe and turn their lives over to Him. He will accept you today as well. All right, what do we do? Listen to prophets that come against you. Don't be the person who immediately, when someone criticizes you or tells you you're wrong, don't be the person who goes straight into self-defense mode. But rather listen, because they might be right, especially if it's a brother or sister in Christ trying to gently correct you towards the Lord. Next, give up arrogance. Give up pride. Give up complacency. Give up allowing for injustice. Give up prioritizing your own wealth. Give up prioritizing your own comfort. Give up prioritizing purchasing. This one hits a little too close to home to me, but here we go. It's possible that we spend too much time thinking about what we're going to buy next. It's possible that we spend too much time simply scrolling through Amazon for what's next on our list that we want to get. This is sometimes called the Diderot effect. French philosopher Denise Diderot, he was 
impoverished for most of his life. He couldn't make money off his philosophy. But he had an admirer in Catherine the Great, Tsar of Russia. And when he needed to send his daughter off to college and he couldn't afford to, Catherine the Great made him this wonderful offer. She offered to buy up his library because she loved his books and she loved his writing and she loved books. So she said, I'll buy up your whole library for an inordinate sum of money. She offered him an incredible sum of money, far more than it was. Well, this was a generous thing from her. And she, in one move, made him rich. And he was able to pay for his daughter to go to college. But he then also bought himself this really nice crimson red dressing gown, he called it. That's not what we think of. It's more like an evening coat. It's as if I bought myself a really nice red velvet evening jacket. (laughs) I would never do it, but there it is. He bought one really expensive, really nice article of clothing. But then he had this problem. He needed new shoes to match. He, He needed new pants. He bought this wonderful coat, but then he realized he couldn't stop there and had to keep buying stuff in order to make things right. And Diderot wrote an essay about this, saying how he eventually had to buy a new desk (laughs) and then a new desk chair. And then he had to get some new prints on his walls to go with the new desk, and it never ended for him until he found himself in debt. And Diderot says... He missed his old coat. It wasn't very nice, but he missed it. And he says, because I was the absolute master of my old dressing gown, but I have become a slave to my new one. Beware the contamination of sudden wealth. The poor man may take ease without thinking of appearance, but the rich man is always under a strain. It's an interesting story, but perhaps we, without thinking about it, have developed a problem even with our own meager wealth. And you can do this whether you have a lot or a little. The way you know that wealth has turned into an idol for you is if you think that that is going to solve what's wrong in your life. If you think the answer to what troubles you is buying a little bit more or spending a little bit more, I know that I am in danger of this so I assume you might be as well. We must give up prioritizing purchasing so that we don't end up looking like the people in Amos who never think about those who are in poverty and who are in need when all we're thinking about is our own comfort and in complacency building our own lives up. Now, we here at Talatha are not the prosper patrol let's call it. You know, there are places, I've been in a place too, you have as well, where there's kind of this uh, looking around, judging each other. You're in a community, you're in a neighborhood, you might even be in a church, unfortunately, where everyone's kind of judging each other's wealth and thinking about what everyone has and then realizing they need to buy things as well. Have, Have you been in this area? The last church I worked at, I might have mentioned to you, was in a town called Prosper, Texas. No joke. And uh, it's a suburb of Dallas that has been there for forever, but it had become a new affluent suburb, so much so that I couldn't afford to live in the town. I lived in the town next door. We were young and poor, but uh, and ministered in that town with these people. And it was an area where there was so much pressure to excel. People who went to work, the husbands and wives in the family were themselves under so much pressure and put themselves under so much pressure to be the very best in their industry. 
And then they put that pressure on their children to succeed in school academically and in sports. And that pressure went all the way down and throughout the whole family. We're not here to be the prosper patrol. We're not going to be the kind of people who Puritan-like say, how dare you buy that car to each other. What I'm saying is no one here is going to judge anyone else. Did you get a nice house? God bless you. Good for you. We're not mad at you. Did you get a nice new car? That's fantastic. It's beautiful. I love it. We're not going to be the kind of people who, in a weird sort of legalistic but on the wrong way, judge people because of what they've gotten. And we're also not going to be, on the other hand, the poor patrol who are judging people that they don't have as much as each other. Really, what we're going to do for each other is just welcome each other in the name of the Lord no matter what. And say, welcome home. We're really just going to get together and love each other because Christ has loved us, not because of what we have. Here's a tool for you. If wealth has become a problem for you in your life, here's a tool. It's, it's often the case that we organize our life this way, thinking about what we want to do in life. And then, so what do we need to buy in order to do that? How much do we need to spend in order to do the things on our list that we want to do? But I think instead, you might reprioritize your life like this. Focus first on who you want to be. What kind of person do you want to be? For a Christian like us, we can say, here's who I want to be. I want to be humble. I want to be patient. I want to be righteous. I don't want to be a sinner anymore. I want to be righteous. I want to be the kind of person who's quick to repent. I want to be a joyful person. Focus first on who do you want to be. So I ask you today, who do you want to be? And be able to say to yourself, I, I want to be the kind of person who reads their Bible every day. I want to be the kind of person who doesn't waste days not following the Lord. I want to be the kind of person who is praying for my neighbors. I just want to be the kind of person who even knows the name of my neighbors. But then I want to be the sort of person who prays for them. I want to be the kind of person who teaches the next generation to love the Lord. And if you start off with focusing on who you want to be, then next you can move down to what do I need to do? And finally, way on down the list, what do I need to buy? Because if you get right who you want to be, you start to realize that all you need to do is change your actions to get there. It doesn't take much money, and you don't have to buy a new device or app to help you get there. Let us not give ourselves in to the same sorts of arrogance, pride, complacency, allowing of injustice, prioritization of our own wealth and comfort that Israel was in at this place. And finally, let us speak up the word of God. You are never too rural. You are never too uneducated. You are never too inarticulate to proclaim the word of God to other people. It is always the word that does the work and not the person. 
you are not too new of a believer. You are not too weak in your faith. You're not too small because it's the Word of God that changes people's lives. To be the one like Amos who says, yeah, I'm just a farmer, but listen to what God has to say to you. You are not too young today. You don't have to wait until your baptism to do this. The word of the Lord is always effective and does what it sets out to do. For you to open your Bible to somebody and say, hey, listen, I I read this and it just meant so much to me, I wanted to tell you about it. It's as simple as that. Let us make a commitment today to do just this. Here's what I want you to do this week. Read your Bible some point and just tell somebody about it. Whether it's in a quick phone call. I do this regularly with text message. I just send someone a text. Did it go out? No, it's on, right? Is my microphone working? It is. Okay, sorry. I thought I was getting a signal. I had one of these come at me. And uh, All right. Read your Bible and share it with somebody this week. I do it with text messages a lot. I just say, hey, I read this and I thought of you and I'm praying for you. God says, I did this this past week with this verse from Matthew. I said, God says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And I just texted it out to some friends when I read that in my personal Bible study. You can do the same. Write a card to somebody. Send them a Facebook message. Tell somebody that you bump into. Go find that neighbor and say, hey, listen, I was reading this and I just wanted to share it with you. If you're weary, if you're tired, God says, come to me, all you who are weary and tired, and I'll give you rest. And I wanted you to know that because I believe it's true. Do these things in response to Amos. Listen to the prophecies against you. Listen when a prophet comes, a brother or sister in Christ comes and tells you. Don't go into self-defense mode, but listen up like King David, not like Israel. Give up on arrogance, pride, complacency, allowing injustice, and prioritizing our own comfort. Finally, speak up the word of God, just like Amos does. God has been good to us. He's blessed us greatly. God has been kind to us, and he has been patient. Let us simply rejoice and declare all the good things that God has done.